Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And welcome to season two. We did it, folks. This is our 53rd week of releasing regularly scheduled Dungeons and Dragons content. We did have a really great boom of more listeners coming in after we asked you to share the show with some of your friends last week. And we're so grateful that the work that we've put into this podcast can help some of you make your games of Dungeons and Dragons better. Or maybe just make your car rides a little more interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really cool. I woke up on Tuesday morning and checked the listener stats, and, and it was this huge explosion. Uh, a lot of people shared the show with with a friend or two, and I just wanted to let you know that it, we really notice. I like to watch it. <laughs> like each individual new listen is like, it's just such a good feeling. It's a feeling like, okay, what we did mattered to somebody out there and hopefully it helps and it it just makes us feel really good inside so it was it was a really wonderful christmas gift that you gave to us and we're just really thankful so this week we'll do a more normal episode where we're going to do a deep dive onto ability checks in dungeons and dragons i think ability checks like persuasion and perception and investigation can be a little bit tricky to get right at the table and we have a few pieces of advice for how to get exactly the right style of Dungeons & Dragons that you want with some of these more difficult to maneuver ability checks. I think this domain of the game is a perfect example of something that we talked about last week, which is you're not always going to want the same thing when you ask your player to make a persuasion check or an insight check or an investigation check or a perception check even, depending on the narrative moment, you're going to want it to play out a little bit differently. So I could foresee a situation where your player says, I want to notice my surroundings to see if anyone's going to sneak up on me. That seems like a situation to me where a simple perception check seems pretty natural. Uh, you either roll high enough and the DM describes uh, this like tiger or wolf or pack of bandits that's coming to surround you and, and you see them in time such that they do not get a surprise round of combat on you. But there are some types of things like mysteries or really important conversations with political figures that you've been building up suspense for for multiple sessions that if you roll a single die and there's just a DC, uh, it can feel very anticlimactic. Yeah, if you think about these examples of conversations, you can have a situation where it actually didn't matter what you said at the table. Because a D20 has a lot of variability to it. If somebody rolls a natural 20, it actually might take away player agency. They can feel like it didn't matter what they told this you know, very high-ranking diplomat. They could have had a 30-minute conversation and at the end of it, you roll a persuasion check. If they get the natural 20, it didn't really matter what they were talking about before. And these situations where a single die roll determines the outcome of your session of D&D and how it feels, I think can be very anticlimactic. And that's the kind of thing we're going to try to avoid with some of the advice we have for this episode. There are some interesting ways to make your characters feel like they still have agency in a conversation, that a single die roll doesn't determine exactly what happened. One way that I like to do this is by showing the players that the DC, the difficulty of persuading somebody, can actually change. 
I think the only way to really do this is to let your players know what the DC is at some point. So at some point in the conversation, maybe at the beginning of the conversation, I'll let them know that whoever they're talking to is, you know, very uninterested. I'll need a DC 20 persuasion check for you to persuade this NPC. But maybe I'll continue the conversation. And as the conversation continues, they say something and I'll let them know that the DC has been lowered. Oh, that's a really good point. Now the DC is looking more like an 18 or a 17. And suddenly they know that they can affect this role, that their actions have meaningful consequences for this die roll. And I think that puts them in the frame of mind where they are going to try to come up with the most interesting thing to say. They're going to come up with the best way to persuade this NPC rather than just using their skill on their character sheet. I think that this idea of incentivizing certain behaviors from your players makes a lot of sense. It's something that's built into the game. Oh, I get experience points for killing monsters. Let's go kill a bunch of monsters. <laughs> you know, I want to level up. So I think this idea of letting your players know the DC of this check, this challenge of persuading or intimidation can change based on the types of information that you role play in this encounter makes a lot of sense. Let's move the DC down based on the types of things that you've said. Something else that you can do that will have a very similar effect to lowering the DC based on what your players say or bring to the conversation is that you can allow them to roll the check with advantage. I think that's a great point, Ray. When I'm DMing, I can often tell when my players are really asking for me to give them advantage. If there's a strength check, and they say, okay, well, I'm going to go and find a lever to really get a mechanical advantage on this check. I know they want me to give them advantage. If they use the help action, if they bring another person into a conversation, I know they want to get advantage on this persuasion check. I think that giving advantage is a really important thing in 5th edition, and we should lean into it. But sometimes I've found that my players are getting advantage, and I think I can still incentivize them to roleplay more and to put more of themselves into the encounter. And so that's when I also choose to lower the DC. One of the ways I did this in a really cool visual way, I thought, was by printing out the DC on a little note card, and it had a big number 20 on it. And then as the players were engaging with the NPC and making them more amenable to, you know, this task, they were trying to convince this NPC to join them on a quest, I would put another note card on top of the 20 and it said 19. And then after that, I put on a card that said 18. And it was kind of this countdown that showed them that the DC was lowering. And I thought that was just a fun visual way to engage my players in this kind of extended ability check. I like that this idea creates a conversational combat that is occurring at the table where the conversation has almost like these hit points where every time they say a good thing, they're almost scoring a hit in the conversation and you're lowering the, the hit points of the conversation, like from 20 down to 19, down to 18, down to 17. Then all of a sudden, one of the players says something uh, that maybe they don't know why, but it hurts their chances of, of successfully persuading this person. Maybe they, they say, hey, if you help us out, we'll take care of the, the mayor. Um, we like we know that you don't like them um, and, and we'll we'll take them out for you. 
but it turns out that the person that you're talking to has a vested interest in the mayor remaining mayor. And then all of a sudden you you pull that note card off and it lets the players know that the DC has actually gone back up. It puts the players in an interesting situation where they, they're playing this game of conversation, but eventually they need to decide when to go for it, when to shoot their shot. Because it's not that the DC will just continually go in one direction. If the conversation drags out and is tiring to the person that they're trying to persuade, the person that they're trying to persuade starts to show exasperation or annoyance with the players. They know, okay, we've done all that we can do. Now we have our bard make that persuasion skill check. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it that, you know, you're creating this kind of combat-like scenario where you do have a resource and it's, and it's going up and down. I think that's that's a great way of showing that you know, D&D does this in a meaningful way. And in reality, I'm not adding any rules to the game. I'm not changing anything. This is still very rules as written. The DC for any check, you know, should be adjusted based on the scenario in the game, what the players are doing and how the NPCs respond. So just making this a little more public, I think is a really great way to engage the players into the scene. There's, Ray, you Ray, you had another way of kind of creating a more combat-like feeling to some of these checks. That is another way to do that through the rules. Absolutely. And I, I think something cool that you could do with this system, especially if your players are going into a situation where they're trying to persuade uh, maybe like a king or a duke of something or their enemy, maybe one of the players is an eloquence bard. They have the actor feet and they have all of the mechanical things that give them insane advantages on their persuasion abilities. So their average persuasion check is something like a 22 or a 23. I think that it's totally reasonable to go into a an, an almost impossible persuasion back and forth combat with this kind of like system that you've you're talking about Ariel starting the DC at some ungodly number like 35 and through all of the players uh, wit and skill they are able to reduce that DC down to an achievable 20 <laughs> you know like I think uh, a lot of people run into a lot of trouble at least on Reddit, it seems, with this idea that their players could roll for something, and if they roll a natural 20, it means that they auto-succeed. I think that's just a matter of communication with your players. You, you let your players know that things that are almost impossible to do do not have a DC of uh, 20. So a natural 20 does, does not necessarily mean that they've automatically succeeded. Uh, the DC could be as high as 30. And if you don't have a plus 10 onto your ability check, you have not achieved the DC. But there are always ways to affect the DC and bring that DC within range. And that kind of gets your players thinking creatively. Nothing is impossible if I am creative enough or me and my friends create a plan to approach this situation. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is a really cool way that we can engage the players with existing mechanics and really bring them into a role play where they felt like they've achieved something that was initially impossible, like literally impossible. And they had to use their wiles and their skills as role players to bring it down into the range of possibility. 
So that was one of my big tools for how to make ability checks more engaging and feel like they are contributing to the drama of the scene rather than taking away from it. Ray, you have some really cool methods in your games of creating a bit more of a back and forth in your persuasion and intimidation checks that I think works really well. What have you found successful? I think that it can be interesting to kind of look at these types of ability checks through the lens of game design, um, and especially through the lens of video game design. When we're thinking about games that have memorable conversation systems in them, like uh, the Witcher video games, for example, a conversation does not typically flip one way or the other based on a single dialogue choice that you make. Uh, it is much more prolonged and has multiple situations for you to hit or miss during that conversation. And this is something that we see reflected in the game of Dungeons & Dragons rules. Dungeons & Dragons has a ton of rules about combat. It is expected that you will miss many attacks in a combat, but that you can still win the combat. If we want our conversations to have this suspenseful, swingy feel that our combats tend to have, it means that we will probably need to borrow some of the ideas from that section of the game. In the same way that it would be very anticlimactic for your fighter to say, I want to make a combat check against that dragon, and for the, the dungeon master to say, the dragon has a 25 DC combat check, and the fighter rolls their dice and they roll an 18, but because they're a fighter, they get plus 10 to their combat checks, and they, they roll a 28 and they slay the dragon, and all of that happens in all of two, <laughs> two seconds. Um, the same thing can be true for our conversations. Uh, like you, you need to add more to it if you want it to feel swingy, like a roller coaster that has um, ups and downs and suspense. So something that I'll bring to my game every once in a while is the idea that players can miss during their conversation checks. So the same way that during a Witcher dialogue, uh, there's there's going to be multiple times where you need to make decisions and go for it. I think there can be multiple times during a dialogue with an NPC or a villain where your players make a persuasion check and they need to succeed on multiple persuasion checks to win the conversation. But if they lose on one of those attempts, it doesn't mean that they've completely lost the encounter. I think you can create really cool narrative moments with this back and forth, multiple persuasion check type of conversation too. I'm imagining you're talking to maybe a king or a queen and the conversation starts and you roll a persuasion check and you roll very low. Suddenly an advisor of the king or queen goes up and whispers in their ear and they frown. And you can tell that you've said something not so good. Then on your next persuasion check, after you continue this conversation, you roll really high. Maybe the advisor goes to whisper in their ear again, but the king or queen puts their hand in their face and says, no, 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 it's okay. Suddenly you can see visually something happening. The conversation has changed course. You've gained the favor of this NPC. I think that's a really cool narrative moment where you're really involved in this multi-layered approach. It takes many roles to achieve this goal that you want, which I think makes it feel harder and also makes it feel more rewarding when you finally do succeed. Or maybe it feels more deserved if you fail. Certainly, I think it can be very unfun if there's an important part of your campaign where you just roll low and suddenly you are derailed. You can feel like, 
oh, if I just rolled better, this would have been a good session of D&D, but I rolled low, and now we kind of have to regroup. I think that this multi-layered approach creates more fun, more agency in what happens in these encounters. I really like a thing that you pointed out there where the player makes a point. I think it be I can I think it can be very tempting as a dungeon master to and and fun also to engage in a full-on conversation with your player during a persuasion and then you roll the persuasion check at the very end and you either succeed or fail. I think if we pause for a second and the the player makes a point that they say their piece and then they roll at the end of saying their piece, you don't respond until they roll for that persuasion. And then if they roll really well, you make the decision that the NPC was persuaded by that point instead of persuaded of the entire conversation. And you save your rebuttal for how well the player rolls for that paragraph of the conversation. And you rebuttal or you have the character respond based on how well they roll. If they roll really well, maybe the NPC goes, hmm, I had not considered that angle. Or if they roll really poorly, the NPC maybe lets their emotions get the better of them and they, they respond kind of bluntly. The The persuasion did not take hold. And you, you let this back and forth unfold as opposed to, I think, doing what is very tempting and like just totally immersing yourself in the role play and, and letting the back and forth just go, 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 go. But then you get yourself into a situation where the players have made a very persuasive argument and you still need the DC to be something reasonably difficult. Yeah, I think what you're talking about, Ray, works really, really well, especially when your players aren't engaged. I'm wondering if some of these same concepts can be used when your players are playing a character necessarily that doesn't fit exactly with what they can do in real life. For instance, you know, obviously a strength 20 character can, you know, move a boulder that whoever is sitting at the table would not be able to do. I think it's interesting to think about what a really high charisma character or a high intelligence character with regard to investigation checks should expect from the DM. And I think these kind of conversations, you, you can think about that with these really high rolls. If somebody rolls really, really high, sometimes I as the player, or sorry, sometimes I as the DM will let the player know that their character did something really special. If they roll a natural 20 on a persuasion check, I might say your character's ease of speech and you know warm smile eased everyone in the room and they, they came up with exactly the right message at the right time. I'll explain to the person at the table how their character is special and came up with something that maybe we couldn't come up with at the table. And I think this works really well for investigation checks sometimes. I'm wondering, Ray, how do you think that we should handle these, you know, really high or really low roles from, you know, a DM perspective? Uh, some dungeon masters can get themselves into a mindset where um, they can be very upset when a player enters a conversation that they wanted to be kind of like a back and forth. Maybe they saw that awesome scene in Critical Role where Laura Bailey is conversing with the Baba Yaga witch. Uh, and they're like, I want to have a, a moment as tense as that in my game. And they're really looking forward to this conversation with an important political figure, hoping that they're going to have this intense conversation. 
and the player enters the scene and they say, I roll, I roll to persuade. And the, they're not interested in engaging. I think it can be natural as a dungeon master to be a little disappointed that the players don't want to engage in this way that you were excited about. But we, we all have to realize that some of our players are here kind of to be passengers, to experience the story, not necessarily to architect it. And I think what you've pointed out, Ariel, is a technique that we have access to that people don't often realize that they have access to. When a, when a player is new to Dungeons & Dragons and they roll to attack an enemy, I describe how, how the barbarian, the dragonborn barbarian, leaps off of uh, like the boulder and cleaves the bandit in two and blood sprayed. Like I'm giving descriptive detail to this attack roll. The player didn't do this. They didn't necessarily know that they had to or that they should. And it adds to the narrative. And I think that's something that a lot of dungeon masters feel very comfortable doing. I think that we should also feel comfortable doing what you just described, Ariel, where the player says, I roll to persuade and they roll a natural 20. And we as dungeon masters narrate and we talk about the amazing social skills that they demonstrated, the points that they brought up at the exact right moments to assuage the concerns of the, the king that their plan wouldn't work. And you make that player feel like they are that awesome, charismatic bard that's capable of being very confident in social situations and you make that player feel that they are that thing even though they aren't that in real life it probably reflects why they wanted to role play as a character that was like that in the first place to fulfill that fantasy so you can give your player that experience and you can bring that experience to your story and you can also give your player kind of like an example of what carrying their half of that persuasion looks like in the future that's a really great point about being an example for your players. I really like this moment where you've given an example of a great persuasion check a few sessions ago, and then your player comes to the table weeks later and, and really engages in the conversation in the way that you've described. I've had success with this with really high intelligence characters. You know, talking about if you want to play a character who's like Sherlock Holmes, and you go into the scene of a crime, and you roll an investigation check, and you roll incredibly high, I might tell the player something like, well, you notice that there's a scuff on the floor next to the rug, and you inspect it, and the dirt patterns show that the rug has only been there for a few days, and it used to be slightly to the left. And now I'm describing something that a player could have picked up on their own, but instead they rolled really high, and so I get to you know, show them things to look for in the future, and then on a future investigation check, they look at the floor and look at the rugs and the furniture and anything that might have moved. I think that can be really cool. But I do have a little bit of maybe a, a hot take, I don't know, about some of these investigation and insight and perception checks. If I think my party is capable of figuring something out on their own, I might tell them that. I think this works really obviously with riddles, like, if I give my party a riddle, they probably know that I expect them to solve it on their own, and that if they want to do an insight check to get a hint, that's something that they have the option to do, but I kind of want them to try to figure it out first. I think that's pretty natural. If, if you go to a sphinx and they give you a riddle, I think players want to try to figure it out on their own. 
I actually think you can do the same thing with investigation and perception checks. Where if they ask for a perception check, I might even say, look, here are the things in the room. There's not a lot going on. I, I think if you tell me what you're looking for, you might find the clue. How do you feel about that, Ray? I think that that's fine. I think that what you're talking about is is a totally valid way of running the game. Um, to someone out there who's like, oh, that's interesting. I haven't done that, though. I, I, I might give that a try. I think the the thing that I would say, ooh, this is what makes me nervous about that, is don't hold the adventure hostage with something like this. So, so what I mean by that is, okay, cool. You don't want to tell them about the thing that's on the ceiling until one of the players says, I investigate the ceiling. That's fine. But you need to be okay with that the the fact that a player may never say, I look at the ceiling. And they need to be able to progress the plot, progress the things that they care about without finding that thing that was on the ceiling. So the example here is you have a murder mystery. The clue that's on the ceiling is one of five potential clues that the players could have found that allows them to move on to the next part of the story. I think that another example of something like this working out really well, like uh, we'll take the riddle for example, I think that it's it's totally fine if there is a treasure room in the dungeon that your players are trying to navigate through and really one of the only ways in um, that at least you've thought of. Your players can always think of something very smart and and you should always, um, if, if they think of a valid way to get into that treasure room that isn't guessing the riddle correctly, lean into that. But you could you could let them know, like, listen, the only way that I know of to get into this room is to answer this riddle correctly. If they don't answer that riddle, it's okay. They didn't get the magic item that's behind the door, but they were able to complete the dungeon and, and further the plot, and maybe they'll come back someday once they've figured out the answer to the riddle. And I think something like this can work really well in a West Marches style game where you include a door that has a riddle and the one group who goes and clears out that dungeon and then comes back to whether it's your friend group or the discord server and they're like oh man it was the the adventure was awesome but we we couldn't get past the riddle to get that sweet magic item i think that's a really fun way to get other players and people excited by this idea of like oh when i go and do that dungeon no matter what the riddle is to get into the treasure room, oh, I'm so excited to like take my shot at it because those other players couldn't figure it out. Point being, I think I really like the idea of doing something like this for bonus points. I don't know if I would block future or further advancement through the story behind something like this. No, I, I completely agree. I think in my head, I always try to stress that no single point should be a point of failure for your adventure. And so if there are six or seven clues and your players find one or two of them on their own enough to move the plot forward, I think that's a super rewarding experience where you as the DM have used your preparation to create enough little paper trails for your players to follow. And, and they picked up on one of them and they got all the way there and it will probably look like they solved a very hard mystery. They will feel like they did something that was really exciting and, and very difficult. And that's a feeling I think I want to foster. And a feeling that I think rolling a natural 20 kind of takes away. 
when you do something and your player you know rolls high and and gets some reward i think it removes a little bit that the player did it i think it feels more like their character did it which sometimes is really exciting certainly rolling a natural 20 is when everyone at the table cheers and you're very excited about it and uh you know especially in combat you're so happy that you got this amazing hit and you feel like you've contributed to the group I think that is true in exploration as well. If you roll a natural 20 on a perception check, you contribute to the group and you're very proud. But I think it's also extremely rewarding to find things on your own in the game and to feel like you as a person can actually see yourself in this world. That this verisimilitude, this simulation aspect of the game where you actually get to walk through a dungeon yourself and kind of see it with your own eyes and find the missing piece, the missing clue. I think that's really something I try to foster if I can. And and if I can't, you know, if they don't find it, I'm happy to let them roll dice and give hints or let the dice work their magic. But, you know, if I can drop six or seven clues and they and they're all hard clues and they find one or two of them, I think that usually leads to a really successful session of Dungeons and Dragons. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think you touched on the last thing that I wanted to kind of like talk about that is maybe adjacent to this topic, which is what to do when your player has a ludicrously high passive score in something. One of my players has the observant feat. It gives them a plus five bonus to their passive perception and their passive investigation check. And this means that not only do they have superior dark vision because they're a drow, but they also have a passive perception of 21. This means that their character is capable of basically noticing most traps and most ambushes. And if I were to nullify their ability by making them roll perception checks, by bypassing their passive perception, it would kind of be me um, disrespecting the decision that they made to take that feat in the per first place. The reason why they gave up a an ability score increase to take this feat was because they wanted this to be a part of their character fantasy. The idea that their character is hyper-observant and notices everything around them. They're not surprised. They see traps. No one sneaks up on this character. No one gets the drop on this character. It's a part of their fantasy, but it also kind of removes a big chunk of the game. A big chunk of Dungeons & Dragons is traps and enemies trying to sneak up on you. So uh, I, I'm not, I haven't figured this out perfectly, but something that I've figured out that I can do is, first of all, I let that player notice a lot of stuff right off the bat. And I describe how um, no one else in the group sees them coming, and but you do. And it gives that player, uh, it makes that player feel special when something like that happens. Like your character notices that you guys are being ambushed. What do you do? Sometimes he doesn't tell the group <laughs> that they're about to be ambushed and it leads to certain shenanigans. But then it also makes the times when he doesn't notice something or somebody sneaking up on them that more, that much more epic. So the party was recently snuck up on by an assassin who has an invisibility skill. This assassin was rolling very high stealth checks to sneak up on the group, and it made this assassin that much more epic because this character usually notices everything. And then another thing that you can do is you can introduce traps 
and hidden things to your players that are multi-layered. So by simply noticing that the trap exists, it doesn't really allow the players to bypass it. A great example of this is something like a portcullis. And yeah, it's not going to drop on the player's head and deal damage to them, but it's still going to drop as soon as somebody or multiple people go through. The player gets this advantage of being able to kind of like plan out what they're going to do to get around it, but it still introduces a problem. The portcullis fell. They were trying to be very stealthy, so they couldn't just smash through it. And it didn't really matter that the player noticed that this thing was going to happen because that wasn't really the trap or the challenge in the first place. I think these are both excellent, excellent ideas that you show your player very often a bunch of enemies, but the one time where your player doesn't notice them, you are now actually creating character development for that assassin that they don't notice, for that master thief that they don't notice. Just the fact that they were able to get past your player is you know, giving them something for the players to remember, some kind of character thing for the players to keep in mind as they go on in the future. Oh, if is this assassin at work? We don't know. Or maybe, can we get this person on our team? They would be such a valuable asset. And then the last thing that I really wanted to talk about is maybe something that most people actually can't bring to their game, uh, but was this amazing, special, and unique experience that I had with one of my players that... Um, I'm going to treasure as one of my all-time favorite Dungeons & Dragons memories. So my players recently in their Out of the Abyss game started trying to uh, persuade different people to give them resources for them to go back down into the Underdark. And one of the people that they needed to speak to or had an opportunity to try and persuade was a wizard who was obsessed over this game this chessboard that they were looking at and they were playing chess against themselves and they they didn't want to be bothered by the players um at that at that time and one of my players uh plays chess has played chess since he was in high school and i recently have started learning how to play chess and have gotten to about like an 860 rating which means that i no longer fall for like three turn techniques basically good work Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Hard, hard, uh, hard fought. Um, and in the book, it says that you roll an intelligence check that has a DC. And if you roll high enough, it means that you beat the wizard in the chess game and they give you the magic item that they have. Well, this is a good example of like the kind of ability check that I think can some kind that I think can sometimes be, you know, really anticlimactic. Exactly. That's exactly what this would have been. But my player, instead of saying, I want to roll an investigation check, said, Ray, if I beat you in a game of chess, you have to give me the magic item. And it was awesome. We played a time game of chess so that the whole game only took about 15 minutes. So the other players um, were kind of like engaged because they knew that it was this intense climactic battle that was going to end in like 15 minutes max. Um, and it was it was super fun, super memorable. And he's way better at chess than me. So he beat me. But it was a close game, right? He was he was only up by like three points for most of the chess game. Um, and and at the end, he won this magic item super well earned went through this memorable experience to get it uh, and in the book it was written to be a simple intelligence check just uh you just make an intelligence investigation uh role to see if you beat the dc but in our game it was a real life 
uh, speed chess game, uh, which is just, uh, I don't know if anyone will be able to do anything with that, but if you can think of things that are unique about your players and unique about your game that give you an opportunity to do something like kind of crazy that'll, that can only happen at your table um, to make your game just that much more special and different, I say go for it because it, it worked out really well in my table. Yeah, I think that's so creative. There are all kinds of ways you can use different you know, types of checks. I think you know, in a chess match, you can literally play it out, but... If I were, you know, trying to use the rules of D&D to make a more engaging chess match, I think you could use a lot of the stuff we've talked about today to do that. I, I think you could, you know, have a moving DC based on some knowledge that, you know, the player might use, or you could have, you know, multiple checks that you could use to make a more drawn out game of chess where suddenly you're winning and then you're losing and it's a very exciting match. I, I think this is a, a really great example and something that, you know, you know, maybe you can use in, in your own game. You, you don't need to have two chess players, you know, sitting at the table to, to have an experience like this. I think you can do it with all kinds of activities using the rules as written if you need. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really hope that this has been helpful to, to folks at home. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of season two of Running Off the Rails. Just as a reminder, Ariel and I are producing only one episode every two weeks. Uh, because we are going to take some of that time back for us to actually work on some Dungeons & Dragons products that we want to get out into the world. So keep an eye out for our next episode of Running Off the Rails, which will release on Monday, January 17th. Until next time, I'm Ariel Rasko. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.